Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. Uh, it's with you is Levi. Uh, Brandon will join me for the taped portion of the interview with what is a first for the Vets First podcast, and that's interviewing a private company called Wave Neuro. They specialize in non-invasive brain stimulation, specifically transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, which you'll hear a lot of uh, from Dr. Eric Wan, who is the president and chief medical officer of Wave Neuro. Uh, he's a former flight surgeon uh, in the Navy, and he was deployed with the, 11, with the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit. In this episode, we'll talk to him about the future of brain stimulation, uh, specifically non-invasive brain stimulation, and how it <clears throat> provides possible treatment for people with PTSD, headache, uh, depression, et cetera. Uh, their company is on the forefront of this process and development of these, of these treatments, and uh, we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. Today, we have Eric, Dr. Eric Wan, uh, who's the president and CMO, Chief Medical Officer of Wave Neuroscience. He is a Navy veteran, uh, a flight surgeon who was deployed with the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit in, where were you, where you, where were you deployed, Eric? Uh, all over the world, but primarily all over the world. in the Middle East. In the Middle East. Um, and I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thanks. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for making the time. Yeah, we also have Brandon Ray, who's the co-host. Hi, everyone. That you know. So the first thing I really like to ask our guests when they come on is, um, where'd you grow up? Yeah, where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in uh, Orange County, California. Um, I was actually born in the Bay Area. My dad was uh, getting his doctorate degree at uh, Berkeley, and then we moved down to Southern California and uh, grew up uh, in this neck of the woods. And left for uh, college and medical school in the Navy. Um, but, uh, you know, California was always my stomping grounds. Well, well <clears throat> where are your parents from? Did they, did they grow up in California too? No, they grew up, they were, they're from South Korea and uh, they immigrated here on um, kind of academic scholarships. And uh, so I was born uh, kind of in the middle of my dad's uh, doctoral thesis. And um, uh, we were very blessed, I think, through you know, they kind of came on the heels of the Korean War and uh, uh, came from not a lot. And, you know, just kind of this whole uh, American dream of having an opportunity. I think they tried to make the most of it and gave a better life to uh, my daughter, or not my daughter, my sister and myself. And um, just because of that, I think uh, we've always felt a, a great sense of pride and patriotism. And uh, when the opportunity came up to give back and uh, joined the Navy, uh, that was a pretty easy decision for me. Yeah, so is that the main reason why you joined the Navy? Uh, it's a big part of it. Of course, you know, they, they pay for medical school. That's that's a huge part of it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I think it's all those things wrapped in one. You know, whenever we make these kind of career decisions, uh, you have to weigh both the economics and, you know, the principles. And, and in this case, I think the mission and the purpose of it uh, was really what uh, resonated with me. Oh, fantastic. Anyway, so uh, regarding your service and your interest in going into uh, the medical field, um, you said you chose the Navy. Um, where'd you do your, where'd you do your training yeah. at? 
Yeah, so my my internship was at Naval Hospital Portsmouth in uh, Portsmouth, Virginia. Um, I did a transitional year, uh, kind of prepping for emergency medicine, and then uh, the Navy frequently asks you to do what's called a, a GMO tour, a general medical officer. So before you finish your medical training, you kind of go out into the fleet and practice medicine. And uh, my GMO tour was as a flight surgeon. Um, so spent six months in Pensacola at the Navy Aerospace Medicine Institute. Uh, and from there, you're given, you're given a billet. And uh, I was uh, fairly fortunate to get stationed at Camp Pendleton uh, with HMM 268. And uh, as part of that uh, exercise, uh, we became uh, part of the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit um, and deployed uh, from uh, 2000, 2001. And, um, and that's, that's really kind of uh, my fleet experience uh, and, and part of where, um, you know, I got to go out and, and do uh, a lot of fun things with the tactical unit. And uh, those are really the friendships that uh, I've maintained uh, throughout the years. Very, very nice, very nice. So, uh, uh, did you get your medical training before or during the Navy? Uh, both. And, and so the way the way they do it is um, they'll they'll pay for medical school, and that's a year for year commitment. And so, uh, add a four year commitment, and they they give you credit for your medical school years. And then, um, in my case, uh, I came to a crossroads where after you finish your GMO tour. You can either stay in the service and do medical training at one of the uh, military hospitals, or um, you can get out and pursue additional training uh, at traditional academic institutions. And uh, I was very fortunate, and to this day, I still think it's a minor miracle that um, you know, I got accepted to one of the Harvard residencies. And uh, so I was at um, I was in Boston uh, for a few years. I did a chief resident year and uh, finished up my medical training before moving back out to California. Um, so, uh, so yeah, got to kind of uh, bump around in different places around the country. And what'd you, what'd you do your residency in? It was uh, occupational and environmental medicine. It's uh, kind of, it's a combined residency. It's a subdivision of preventive medicine where we're looking at environmental toxicology and kind of root cause analyses on um, injury patterns, disease patterns, epidemiology. Uh, and uh, public health advocacy. Fantastic. So, do you think? Do you think being serving in the military? Do you think it really shaped how you thought about medicine? Or, um, you know, medicine to me, as a PhD scientist, is very like uh, uh, rote memorization. Like you have to do this, 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 and then you do these decision trees to make diagnoses for people. Do you think it changed you being uh, a flight surgeon in the military? Did it? Did it change your outlook on how medicine is performed? Uh, do you think you became better at, at medicine because of that, because of that kind of service? Oh yeah, way more, way more than I ever could have anticipated. And uh, I, I think being a doctor embedded within a unit, um, those friendships that develop, uh, it, it really becomes um, a labor of love and, and one of service where uh, you'll do anything for these guys and by extension, their families. And so, uh, I think in many times when you go to sort of ivory tower medicine, um, you're just treating a condition uh, or a disease or a pathology instead of treating a person. And here, uh, especially when you're deployed and you're with somebody 24-7 and have an intimate knowledge of sort of what's going on, um, rather than just, for example, if there's like an air crew or a crew chief who 
maybe struggling instead of um, uh, kind of looking at that in a sterile clinical environment, you know, we might understand that, you know, their, their kid just got diagnosed with cancer. And, and so you can have these honest, courageous conversations that if you were just a doctor in a clinic and didn't get to know your patients quite on that same level, um, you wouldn't have that kind of interface and uh, that background knowledge to really serve them the best way that you could. Cool. Yeah. So um, now we're gonna really going to get to the meat of this bad boy uh, today, which is talking about transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, I'll let you introduce transcranial magnetic stimulation. You're the expert here. I um, am fascinated by it. I think it is a really n novel way and, and the path word or the path forward for um, treating neuropsychiatric diseases um, in addition to many other types of ailments in, without using pharmacological agents, which um, can have a whole host of side effects. And so TMS is really exciting. And I'll let Eric introduce it um, because he's the expert here. Sure, sure. So transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS for short, uh, it was FDA approved for treatment-resistant depression back in 2009. And when I first heard about it, um, I thought it was uh, kind of avant-garde and, and maybe uh, a little bit scary. But what I learned is that it's a very um, benign and uh, simple treatment. It's not, you know, I, I think initially there are visions of shock therapy or electroconvulsive therapy, and it's really nothing like that. It's a much kinder, gentler variant of, of stimulation, of brain stimulation. And, and so the reason they're using a magnetic coil are their first order principles of physics. And uh, specifically, there's something called the biosovert principle, where you're able to deliver uh, a gentle pulse of energy across a solid object. And in this case, it's the skull. And so the first time I heard magnet, you know, my skepticism radar went up and I was like, ah, you know, I don't know about you know, magnets, but it's actually, this is a 1.5 to 2 Tesla MRI grade coil that's uh, engineered to deliver pulses to the cerebral cortex. And when you're able to do that in a uh, strategic kind of clinical manner, um, you're able to modulate brain activity in a fairly predictable and safe way. And so the data on this is now, there've been millions of treatments delivered and the safety profile compared to many pharmaceuticals is, uh, is, is really quite stellar. And so, so and I don't want to, yeah, go ahead. So as a patient who's getting TMS, like how long does it take to be treated with it? Is this something I can just go into the clinic, sit down and be done within 10 minutes? Or is this um, something that takes like a whole day? Because uh, without knowing anything on TMS, it sounds like it's a, it's a big ordeal, but I, I have a feeling you're going to tell us it's not. Yeah, it's really not. It's definitely not a whole day ordeal. It's it's a roughly thirty minute uh, process per day, and um, it's uh, fairly effortless. You sit in a chair, and uh, they place a coil in an area somewhere around um, your scalp, and uh, you'll hear roughly five to six seconds of pulses, and um, and that's your brain being stimulated. And then uh, fifty five seconds of rest. And so they go through 30 cycles of that typically is, is the protocol. And there's some newer protocols coming out where you might be able to do that in a shorter amount of time. And um, I don't want to misrepresent that it's completely painless, but most people feel that it's a, a fairly painless procedure. Um, in the worst case scenario, some people may feel some twitching of the muscles in their forehead. 
um, and and it's probably worthwhile going over uh, the risks and side effects. We like to be totally transparent about this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and so uh, because there is a uh, pulse being generated um, that's crossing through skin and skull, some muscles can twitch and you can get a transient headache. Uh, that's usually alleviated by over-the-counter ibuprofen or Tylenol. Uh, it's something less than 5% of the population can experience that. Uh, there can be local skin irritation due to the stimulation. Um, but the most significant side effect we like to talk about is the risk of seizure. And this is kind of a hypothetical risk, and I'm knocking on wood when I say this. We haven't had uh, a de novo episode of seizure at any of our clinics uh, to date. Um, but the number that is uh, typically discussed is a 1 in 10,000 risk. Uh, some studies are showing risk of 1 in 100,000 um, risk of uh, having a epileptic or, or seizure type episode. But uh, to put a benchmark around that number, the Nintendo Game Boys that our children play with, uh, they list a risk of seizure of 1 in 4,000. And so... Um, it's a pretty safe number, but nevertheless, I think we have to be as honest and transparent as we can. And uh, for anyone who's had an episode of seizure or epilepsy in the past, it's something you should definitely talk to your doctor about. We'll definitely know the uh, age group of our listeners if they know what a Game Boy is. <laughs> <laughs> I, may be, I may be dating myself. but uh, <laughs> All right. You're with the Game Boy crowd right here. That's okay. So, you know, one thing when, when I, uh, my work focuses on, I'm just gonna tell you a little bit about my work. Uh, so, you know, I've been focusing on uh, preclinical work. You do you do most of clinical work, but my preclinical work is to to sort of understand the neurocircuitry involved in migraine and headache um, for the use in TMS. So, I'd really like to be able to to discover brain areas and specific circuits that could be activated um, by things like TMS or direct current stimulation to the head. Um, you know, and so one thing I've always been worried about when I'm doing my work and, you know, you always want your work to be important and, and, and give fantastic results, but how, what, what is the capability of TMS to actually stimulate specific circuits in the brain? Wow. So that's, that's actually, that's a fascinating question. And I, I think you're being uh, very humble. I think that is really groundbreaking work uh, that's being done, but um, just to, for, for your audience, uh, TMS, there's a specific variant of low frequency stimulation. Uh, the product is called eNeura. It has been FDA approved for migraine headaches. And so th there is definite therapeutic benefit uh, in using, there's all types of ways you can modulate um, using higher low frequency stimulation to achieve therapeutic benefit. But specific to the work you were discussing, you know, these computational analyses of neural networks and, um, and, and circuits, cluster analyses, uh, is really where I think a lot of the future discovery is going to occur. And oscillatory dysfunctions, and so this is the space that my organization and the scientists and engineers I, I have the honor of working with uh, are really starting to take a deep dive is we're a diverse species um, and we all have sort of different brain signatures and how we honor that biodiversity by tailoring treatment to each individual is sort of our specialty. And we have used um, EEG, quantitative EEG, to analyze brain patterns and to decide, number one, where do we want to treat? And then number two, what type of waveform patterns should we use to optimize the outcome? And- uh, Can I interject for a second? Of course. So, so 
what I think you're saying is that you can you can take take a patient X, right? Say Brandon. Uh, let's say he has really bad uh, depression. Uh, he goes into the clinic. He gets an EEG, which records your your brain pattern, your brain waves, right? Electrical right. activity of your brain, and um, you'll look at areas that we've decided are involved with or thought to be involved with depression. And you'll see that they're either increased or decreased or something relative to some normal. And then you, so then you use your, your, your product to try and fix that. Is that what you're, how you're, what you're getting at here? That's exactly right. And, and so um, the EEG, the electroencephalogram, it's an electrophysiologic picture of the brain, much like an EKG, an electrocardiogram is an electrical picture of the heart. And when we take these images, uh, because they've been digitized, we can now do very sophisticated um, computational analyses uh, of those uh, brain images. And what we're trying to look for are waveform patterns or disruptions in waveform patterns that we might be able to tune up or, or to improve. And so just to take the example of Brandon, who uh, I think for the most part, has a perfect brain, and uh, I'm looking at him right now. That's questionable. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, so let's just take a hypothetical. And so most of us are living somewhere in the range of 8 to 13 hertz, which means we encode information 8 to 13 times per second. And let's just say Brandon is a 12.2 uh, hertz brain, which means he's encoding information 12.2 times per second. But something happens in his life, whether... He's in a uh, accident and uh, has a loss of consciousness type of head injury or the emotional trauma of, you know, he loses a loved one um, or, you know, is in a football game and, and whacks his head. And, um, you know, we might find an area of the brain that is not cycling at that ideal rate. And so the stereotypical waveform pattern that has begun to emerge through doing tens of thousands of EEGs. Uh, we've realized the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex or the left frontal area of the brain is our executive function area of the brain and we'll typically see a cluster of neurons that's firing too slow. So let's just say as a hypothetical, those neurons are firing at two hertz. If the rest of your brain is cycling 12 times per second, but the executive function, the emotional areas of your brain are cycling two times per second, that information mismatch may cause the brain to feel a little bit depressed. And all we're doing is geo-navigating to that area and giving those neurons a gentle reminder, a friendly reminder that, hey, you want to be a 12. And when we give it that gentle stimulation through transcranial magnetic stimulation, the miracle of this, I think, is that the body does a lot of the work for you. We're not hitting the brain with a sledgehammer. Uh, we're just giving it this little reminder that, hey, you want to be here, not here. And when we do that repeatedly over a few days, we start to entrain those neurons uh, to start cycling back. And uh, uh, we can do EEGs every week, every two weeks, and, and watch this sort of happen in real time. And that, I think, is true to um, clinical best practices of uh, the way Mother Nature engineered us, or God, or, or whatever your belief is, um, is that we tend to be healing organisms. And if you just give the body the right environment and the right nutrients and um, you know, it tends to heal itself. And so whether that's taking two ends of a wound margin and approximating them, that'll heal and sometimes grow back stronger. Or you take two ends of a broken bone and you put those ends of a bone together 
um, what we call mano reduction. You know, the, that bone will frequently heal and grow back stronger. And the brain is no different. Just uh, for one reason or, or another, some neurons may get stuck in the wrong frequency. And we just need to give them a little nudge, and, and they do most of the work for you. So Eric, what you're saying, if I were, say we continue the analogy, if I were going in to get a TMS, it's not something I would have to do for the rest of my life. Eventually, uh, with repeated treatment, my brain will self-correct in a, in a way. And I, is that the case? I'd be okay, or any patient after coming in and getting TMS uh, for X amount of times uh, could be uh, fully corrected? That's the goal. And I don't want to misrepresent uh, the technology. We can't say, certainly we cannot say 100% of the time. Sure, yeah. um, and a lot of the studies right now are being done to assess the durability of treatment, the longevity of treatment. Um, there are certainly uh, a number of, uh, most of my experience has been with veterans, but there, there are certainly patients who get the treatment and do well and continue to flourish over time. Um, there are others who may need to come back and get a little bit of a tune-up after a year or, or six months. Um, but the important part of this discussion, I think, is um, that, you know, for people who are having side effects from, from drugs, pharmaceuticals, or otherwise, or are just struggling, that all, there are alternatives, and uh, there's reason for hope with emerging technologies, and it doesn't have to be ours, but... Uh, at least for the audience, I want there to be an understanding that there's a lot of innovation happening. I think the VA is one of the organizations that's really on the leading edge of a lot of this. And just to not give up hope, um, you know, for the veterans who are listening, uh, by all means, stay in the fight. Uh, there's a lot of work being done to, to help this group. And uh, from where I'm sitting, there are good reasons for hope. And uh, again, I don't want to overpromise or sure, sure. Uh, you know embellish, but a lot of the studies that are coming out, and I think a lot of um, the personalized precision guided treatments that are emerging, uh, they're showing a lot of promising data, and uh, and and that's really the type of collaboration and uh, multidisciplinary work that is being done, and I, I think fairly exciting. Yeah, one of the big centers in the VA is uh, in Brown at Brown University in Rhode Island, I believe. Um, they have, they're one, they're on the leading edge of TMS treatment in veterans uh, for depression and uh, designing new treatments all the time uh, through the use of Noah, Dr. Noah Phillip, I want to say, is his name? Is that correct? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we, yeah. Yeah. We've had the tremendous privilege of being able to work with him and uh, he's been studying. We have a portable TMS device that is in, uh, I guess I would say beta stage uh, of assessment. And he did a, a pilot study looking at veterans with uh, PTSD and comorbid depression, MDD, major depressive disorder. And we found a, a very positive signal. There's more separation from the placebo group than even I was expecting. And so uh, normally these pilot studies, you're just looking for any kind of signal. You're not necessarily looking for statistical significance, but we were able to achieve statistical significance uh, with a fairly small study group. And... Um, and so based on that, there's a follow-on study that is in the works um, to look at not just PTSD and, and depression, but uh, there was kind of an incidental finding that we weren't expecting where uh, a number of people who were struggling with addictions uh, found really significant benefit 
um, and were coming off their opioids and benzodiazepines. And oh, that, of course, yeah, that, of course, is uh, really exciting and mirrors a lot of what we're seeing uh, kind of in our commercial practice as well. Huh. Interesting. So, you know, um, can you talk a little bit about what, what the goal of your company is, of, of Wave Neuroscience? Yeah, really, I think the goal is to, number one, innovate technologies, but also to make it more accessible uh, to the masses and vulnerable populations. Now that we are starting to pull back the curtain on the efficacy and safety of the technology, the mission changes from validation to um, proliferating it and, and getting it to people who are in a vulnerable position. And as a veteran myself who... Um, you know, my unit suffered some of the first casualties of the second Gulf War. And just, you know, for a decade, you know, being in search of something that can help my brothers and sisters who are struggling with post-traumatic stress and concussion, you know, the signature injuries of the most recent conflicts, um, it's kind of hair on fire. We have to do something because 22 veterans committing suicide a day, it's just a totally unacceptable number for the greatest country in the world. And Yeah, absolutely. Um, anything we can do to push that mission forward. Um, we're doing everything we can to speed it up. And, and that's part of why um, to work with the group is, uh, I think, powerful and has kind of a deep bench of, of knowledge and expertise like the VA. Uh, we've also been working with Uniformed Services University and Special Operations Command. Um, we're doing everything we can to uh, both do confirmatory studies on the science, but also get it to populations who need it. Um. Just a couple more questions. So why do you think, you know, um, why do you think this is working so well in patients who don't respond to pharmacological agents? So um, medicine, so in, well, in depression or, or uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, it, it's a good question. And I don't, I don't want to come across as anti-pharma. I, I definitely am not of that ilk. You know, I think no, not medicine and, and drugs really have their place in, in the armamentarium. But any kind of medicine, just by virtue of the delivery system, um, is susceptible to kind of genetic modifiers, meaning we all have different types of metabolism. Um, and specifically, there's an enzyme in our body called cytochrome P450. And there's a lot of variants of this where people may be fast metabolizers, slow metabolizers. And you know, we saw with Ambien, for example, the way women and men process it is very different and the dosing varies quite a bit. And as it relates to opioids, we have found there are fast metabolizers and slow metabolizers, people who may need a much higher dose to have any kind of clinical benefit. And because of that variability, um, there's a certain amount of unpredictability in response rates. Whereas with TMS, um, rather than using psychopharma or pharmaceuticals, we're using first order principles of physics. And as a scientific discipline, physics tends to be a bit more predictable, like nobody's immune to the laws of gravity or Newtonian yeah. physics. And because of that, uh, we've seen, and uh, certainly we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we have found greater predictability when we're delivering doses um, to see how that's modulating brain activity. And uh, a lot of our work has been trying to minimize dose, both for purposes of safety, but we found that it's not necessary to overwhelm cortical tissue, brain tissue with high doses of energy. You can do this with very low dose energy and, and achieve great clinical outcomes. 
And so I, I think that's a big part of this is as uh, neuroscience evolves and learns more, we're able to um, engineer this in a way that's safer, better, faster. And, and that's, I think, ultimately the goal of all researchers. And, yeah. uh, you know, we're trying to be uh, a part of that uh, in the spirit of constantly getting better. That's, that's really uh, where a lot of our science is devoted. Eric, my last technical question is, say I were to develop uh, PTSD or depression or something, potentially from like a TBI, um, is t in, your, in your opinion, is TMS just as effective if I got treated early on compared to later? Is there an optimal window of time that you know? So if, say I'm listening to this podcast and, and I've, I've had this issue for a long period of time, there's still hope for me to potentially have some alleviation of these symptoms. Or is it something I'd have to go in early on? How, how does that work? So from a scientific and evidence-based perspective, I don't think we have the data yet where I can say with great confidence um, that the chronology and the time away from the injury um, is predictive in terms of response. Uh, what I can share anecdotally is we've had plenty of uh, veterans who have come in for treatment years after the injury We've had great response, and um, we, we've had, in a few cases, some professional athletes who have come in uh, contemporaneously with a head injury who have also done well. And so I would say, you know, across the board, uh, there have been uh, encouraging outcomes, um, but I don't have large population-scale data that I can point to uh, and say definitively uh, yes or no. Um, but I do think in terms of... Uh, you know, if, if I'm somebody in the audience wondering, could this help me? Could this not? Um, I think that this is a time where a lot of that's being illuminated and uh, just to, you know, do your diligence and figure out, is this something that I'm interested in? Uh, could this be something that helps me? Um, our specific technology. And so what we're doing is taking that base technology, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and we're adding algorithms and analysis through the EEG to it, to personalize it to the individual and be a bit more precision guided. And this methodology is currently in clinical trials uh, under FDA supervision for persistent post-concussion syndrome and post-traumatic stress disorder. And so those are the specific areas that we found some of the most promising preliminary data. But specific to those two populations, we have found that the EEG imaging and the type of targeted therapy that we can do seems to be very uniquely responsive to the treatment. And so that's where, although we're seeing encouraging anecdotal outcomes, we want to wrap around that uh, very rigorous academic study to ensure that this is generalizable data for all people and not just a, a small sub subsegment of people that we're seeing. You know, what I, when I think about TMS, um, I sort of think about where cancer treatments are going nowadays, where it's where you're, you're, and you've hit, you know, you've been talking about this is personalized medicine. You know, you can get genetic analysis of someone's tumors now and, and give them very specific treatments that target that type of tumor with those genetic mutations in them. And, you know, I, I think the, the sky is the limit, if you will, with TMS because it is so personalized and can be so personalized. And as we find out more and more and more about what these brain oscillations mean, in, in, in any given individual and pair them with like, say, genetic mutations in that person. Or, you know, there's, there's, there's so much to be learned 
that we don't know yet about TMS. So I think um, it's it's boundless and it's its ability to possibly help people in the future. Um, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah, I mean, towards that personalization piece, yeah, I mean, there's so many parameters um, that can be adjusted. Everything from uh, how many, what's the pulse rate, how many pulses per minute, how long should the trains be, what kind of waveform pattern. And, you know, there there's a large variety of um, oscillatory patterns you can use. We, we tend to use sinusoidal waveform patterns because that's the closest uh, biological uh, simulation that we have, but others have chosen sort of a square tooth or sawtooth pattern. And, um, you know, there's more research being done on what is the ideal uh, personalization uh, platform to use. And uh, I think as time goes on, and it's almost on a weekly to monthly basis, we're seeing new research being published that allows us to uh, be smarter about how we're doing this. So, um, Dr. Juan, you are quite humble human being um, from getting to know you in these two short times that we've talked to you. But um, he was the uh, CTO, I believe, of one of the largest aviation companies in the world. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And so um, you were a Navy flight surgeon. You're now the president of a company. Do you ever do anything for yourself? And if so, what do you do? Yeah, you know, uh, of course, I think, <laughs> I think all of us need to find balance. And so, um, you know, for me, I, I've got uh, a beautiful wife and five children. And most of the, my time away from work is, is spent either, you know, watching my kids play soccer or uh, my son is, uh, you know, just he just graduated high school, but he's really into cybersecurity and gets involved in these national competitions. Uh-huh. Roman does something called... Uh, cyber patriot and uh, you know he's been nationally ranked in that and uh, so all of that and you know I enjoy um, recreationally running and uh, trying to work out and I, I, I watch probably more football than I should um, but, Ooh, what, uh, what team do you like <laughs> gosh you know I, I grew up liking uh, the Raiders because uh, I was born in Oakland. Um, but uh, now, so I, I did my undergrad studies at, at Notre Dame. And so I, I definitely follow uh, the Irish. Oh, um, man, I don't know if we're going to, I don't know if I'm going to post that. I'll just like the uh, keyword try to exercise. Yeah. <laughs> but I know, I know you guys being from Iowa, I think I mentioned to you, my sister did her cardiothoracic fellowship at University of Iowa. And so uh, I, by proxy, kind of became a Hawkeye fan and um, <laughs> I, I love Big Ten football. But, uh, you know, if Iowa plays Notre Dame, I have to admit, I probably cheer for Notre Dame. That's fair. I'll give you that. Well, hey, I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast and um, telling us about what you do. I think uh, it, it, it's exciting and it's, a, it's the future of, of, of some treatment in, in uh, neuropsychiatric disorders, which is really exciting. So, um, yeah, thanks again. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Really honored to be able to spend this time with you guys and uh, appreciate the great work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.